This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning and welcome back. Welcome to those arriving in Sashin. We've been exploring the stories of our lineage ancestors, the lineage of transmission of light from Sakyamuni Buddha up to today, a lineage of recognizing and appreciating the light, practicing and verifying the light. But uh, for better or worse, it seems that the lineage is not just a matter of practicing and verifying light. Many people, I think, practice and verify the light, but they're not necessarily um, holding and passing on the, the lineage of the Zen ancestors. So what else would there be? It seems that uh, part of what any lineage is, is maintaining the wind of the house, a style of practice. And uh, this is a delicate matter because it has to change. Like the way we're practicing here today is in many ways quite different from Shakyamuni Buddha's Sangha practicing in, in Magadha 2,500 years ago. In some ways it's kind of similar too, right? So this is the delicate matter. What are the essentials? And, a lot changes when the Dharma uh, moves from one country and culture into another. I guess it was about uh, a thousand years after the Buddha's time. So maybe roughly about halfway between the time of the Buddha and our time that uh, Dharma was flourishing and China, a very different culture from India. And, and in some ways, it strikes me that um, the style of our practice today, the, the wind of our house is maybe very similar to like about a thousand years ago in China. Much more like that than, than uh, Indian Buddha practice. Maybe once it became conscious, a conscious um, relating to the lineage, then it, became, it becomes harder to change it. it becomes uh, the those in the lineage feel it. It's very, very precious and unique way to maintain. So in some ways, it's very similar to a thousand years ago in China, and then in Japan, there was a a strong devotion uh, from the beginning of Zen to kind of like 
keep the style of of the old Chinese way. So modern Japan, which was what we inherited, and uh, the forms of practice set up are are kind of like Song Dynasty Chinese forms that we practice today. And we've changed some too, but we try to be careful about that. So maintaining the lineages, we have to uh, remember the heart of the light that is really um, everything else circles around. But, uh, but I think it's easy to understand that if we were to do away with all the forms and just um, were devoted to practicing and verifying the light in our daily lives, however we're doing it, or even maybe in periods of quiet sitting, it would have a very different feeling. We, some might say, oh, that's not really the, um, the lineage of Bodhidharma and Dungshan and Dogen and Keizan. And as I mentioned the other day, sometimes it seems like the lineage is hanging by a thread. And that's because um, not only must there be a devotion to practicing and verifying the light, but there's like, you know, first you take out the chopsticks, then you take out the spoon and you flip it over this way. So the bowl is up and the handle to the left. We have to maintain. This is a question. Do we have to maintain? We, uh, that is part of the style of our house. So um, to care, to, and I think this is true across all lineages, secular and religious, but definitely within Buddha Dharma, there is, this is the level of detail that every lineage has. And uh, so, it's hanging by a thread because how many people want to not only be devoted to practicing and verifying that light, but take care of like, which comes out first, the chopsticks or the spoon, you know, maintaining all of this and conveying all of this and the spirit of all this and the flavor of all this. It's not a, it's not a small matter. Right? And uh, you might say, well, what's the point of all that? And, and uh, if we say what's the point of all that, then um, that's why the lineage is hanging by a thread. Some of you may have seen there's, a, there's an article, a blog post by uh, a friend of mine, Dosho Port, and his, um, he's got a blog you can look up after Sashim called um, Wild Fox Zen. And recently, a friend of his posted a, an article on, on the extinction of Zen in Japan. You know, for a while, I think the Zen and other Buddhist institutions in Japan have been kind of on the decline as the culture becomes more secularized. Um, but even just the past few years, the extinction is increasing as many extinctions around this world are. The one who wrote the article is a um, priest 
the practice at Bukokaji, where I practice following the statistics in Japanese Zen. And many of the, the training halls, the monasteries in Zen are closing down just in the last few years. Soto and Rinzai Zen. He's particularly tracking the Soto's ones. But Rinzai, there's a lot less to begin with, actually. So um, I was surprised to hear that uh, in Japan, there's only six Soto school training monasteries with more than 10 priests or 10 residents. There's only six in the whole country of Japan. Which I think if we start looking around, see that there's probably more in America than Japan now, which is kind of shocking. There's, um, you know, so that's, I think in the, and then there's even smaller than 10, that's really small sotos or monasteries with just a handful or a few um, priests, because generally there the, it's priests, sometimes they, people practice monastic way too, but it's a little bit rare, unlike America. And uh, so in a kind of monastic type of training like this, I think at Sashin basically happens in monasteries. It doesn't really happen in uh, small family temples pretty much ever, as far as I know. Maybe occasionally. So this is kind of like a, a little week of, of full-on monastic life we're doing this week. And uh, so there's maybe only a couple hundred people in the whole country of Japan doing this kind of practice right now. Is that shocking? <laughs> maybe more in America. Of these six um, monasteries in Japan, uh, with more than ten practitioners, um, Aheji Dogen's monastery has about 120. That's always been a major training place, but that's about half the size of what it was five years ago. Maybe 300 priests. So they're big decline. Sojiji's Keizan Zenji's temple, there's about 60 priests there now. Those are the two big ones, have always been the two big ones. But the um, step down from there is there's a kind of branch of Aheji in Tokyo that has 20. Um, Toshoji, some people know, because some of our friends from San Francisco Zen Center have been going to Toshoji in the past few years. There's about 15 practitioners there. And uh, there's one monastery just for women, um, training monastery just for women in Soto Zen. I think one in the whole country. And there's um, less than 10 uh, priests and nuns practicing there now. It's hanging by a thread. Why? Because in this modern world, who has the time to like take care of whether the chopsticks or the spoon comes out of the bag first. We have things to do and uh, business to take care of. 
profits to earn and, and uh, technology to develop, planets to fly to, so on. Who wants to maintain Song Dynasty, like archaic, dusty old form of practice? Very few people. So um, it may be up to us, especially the younger generation. Mel, so sure. Us old fogies, we don't have much time left. Because <laughs> <laughs> it takes a lot. It takes a long time, right, to like learn all of these things and um, and um, and uh, stay devoted to the light. It's even scarier, maybe, if we just maintaining whether the spoon or chopsticks come out first and forget about the light. That's easy to happen too. Then it's just a it's a relic. It's an ancient relic that's being preserved, but it's it's lost its heart. This is not a small matter. Good to see you all on the screen, and good to see some of your names too. You're welcome to um, show your face if you like. So uh, this is the the record of transmitting the light the stories of our lineage ancestors in uh, India, in this case, uh, collected by and commented on by Keizan Zenji, the co-founder of our lineage in Japan in the 14th century. I think these talks were probably given during Sashin at the Daijoji, Keizan's first temple. And this translation is by Francis Cook. And we have other translations by Thomas Cleary and Griffith Folk is um, available for free online. Uh, the latest um, fully annotated version. So when I'm read reading from this, I'm often changing the translation based on the Japanese and on the other translations. The 16th ancestor in Japan was Venerable Rahulata. Griffith Folk says his, his name was really Rahula Badra. And uh, we recited his name this morning as Ragorata Daiosho. The 16th ancestor was Venerable Rahulata. He was attending Kanadeva. And when he heard about karmic causes in former lives, he experienced awakening. That's the case for today. Not much to chew on yet. But uh, stay tuned. And the circumstances of, of um, his life here. Um, 
Raghurata, Rahulata was from Papilavastu, where Shakyamuni Buddha grew up. Strictly speaking, Buddha was born in Lumbini, which is near Papilavastu. But Lumbini uh, is because there's a, there's a uh, Ashoka pillar to mark the spot where um, Buddha popped out of his mother's side and landed on the ground and took seven steps. That place is very um, developed with Buddhist temples from all countries everywhere and huge parks and many pilgrims. I've enjoyed hanging out in Lumbini. But of course, I also wanted to visit Kapilavastu um, nearby, which is just this rundown, tiny, like, you can barely even tell that it's Kapilavastu. I think there's an old rusty sign. It says Kapilavastu, and it's just a couple of old rocks and ruins of old temples. And nobody's really practicing anymore in Kapilavastu. Part of the problem too is that it's, it's right on the border of India and Nepal. And both countries um, want to claim Kapilavastu as for like tourist revenue. So there's actually two Kapilavastus, one in India and one in Nepal, and they argue over which is the real one. <laughs> very close together. I think I went to the Indian one. Lumbini is um, actually in Nepal, present time. So Rahulata was from Kapilavastu. As for this matter of causes in former lives, Venerable Kanadeva was traveling about teaching after he realized awakening with Nagarjuna, as we heard about yesterday. And he arrived in Kapilavastu. There was a householder there named Brahma Shudaguna. The Brahma virtue of purity. And one day, a, uh, a mushroom that looked like a big ear started growing on a tree in their garden. I don't know, do we call them ear mushrooms now? You know what we mean by that, right? There's fungus that grow on the side of a tree. And sometimes they're edible. And this one, this fungus, and its flavor was exceedingly fine. Only the householder, Brahma Shuddhaguna, and his son, Rahulata, took any of it and ate it. But whenever they picked some of this mushroom, more grew again. And when it was all gone, it regrew. As they ate it, it kept regrowing. No one else in the family could see it except for dad and his son. At that time, Venerable Kanadeva knew about causes in previous lives. And he had an intuition to go to their house in Kapitavastu where um, when this monk Kanadeva came to the house, um, 
the father asked him, he said, you're a Buddhist monk, you're supposed to know about all kinds of interesting stuff. So um, can I tell you, we have this mushroom here and it tastes exceedingly fine, but it's strange because whenever we eat from it, it keeps growing back. It never disappears. Do you know why? Why do you know why this would might be, Kanadeva? And Kanadeva told him, long ago, a monk was given alms by your family. I think this was maybe like in this house in this town. Uh, a monk was came collecting alms, and. Um, this monk, however, had not yet completely opened the eye of the way, and he consumed the alms of the faithful in vain. So when he died, he became a mushroom as a recompense. <laughs> Since only you and your son made offerings to him at that time with pure hearts, you have been able to eat this fungus. Well, the others in your family have not. Because the others were maybe like, oh, those old begging monks again. You know. Leeches on society. But, uh, but you two made offerings. And so now you get to enjoy this exquisite mushroom. I don't know, you may have heard that there's a humongous fungus <laughs> in uh, Eastern Oregon. It's um, currently understood to be the largest living organism on this planet. Have you heard about that? Yeah, they used to think it was like blue whale. No more. It's a humongous fungus. <laughs> it's about 2,000 acres, or about four square miles in Eastern Oregon. And it's about 2,500 years old, which happens to be right at the time the Buddha was born. <laughs> this fungus started growing. And um, as you may know, that um, fungus and mushrooms are are unusual. They're, they're not officially in the plant kingdom, right? They're not really plants, but they're not really animals either, right? They're their own family of beings. And um, I, this may be the only story I've ever heard of, of um, rebirth in the mushroom realm in the Buddhist literature. Uh, so usually we talk about there's six realms of rebirth, including humans. There's hell realms, hungry ghost realms, animal realm, human realm, like the deva god realm, and then the kind of jealous god realm, the wannabe god realm. And uh, those are six realms. But um, today I'd like to propose just the possibility that there may be a seventh realm <laughs> called the fungal realm. <laughs> and it's possible to be born there. 
Um, and uh, these mushrooms and fungus, as you may have heard, um, can be very beneficial to um, humans and other life on Earth. There's a there's a chapter in the um, Lotus of the Wondrous Dharma Sutra uh, about bodhisattvas springing up from the earth. Bodhisattvas, like huge quantities of bodhisattvas emerging from the earth to benefit beings. I don't know if the chapter is about humongous fungus. <laughs> But they're bodhisattvas that come to benefit beings. And I, it, the list of benefits of the way that, that um, fungal beings benefit humans is too long to list them all today. But um, you know, some of them are that they decompose organic matter in the soil so that other beings can access it. I think this might even be like, like worms and stuff like that. Without the fungus, they wouldn't be able to get the nutrients. And then the whole food chain based on the soil wouldn't work without fungus. They really were, our lives depend on fungus. Especially to um, make the soil alive. That fungus produce antibiotics like penicillin and other medicines that have benefited humans for a long time. And uh, nowadays they're discovering that, that fungus breaks down waste. And some people are proposing this might be a way to, um, might be one of the keys to um, the environmental collapse of the planet this time is fungus. They can break down even like I think petroleum products. They can, you know, they eat it and transform it into um, workable nutrients. And they um, bring uh, wisdom and light to human realm. So this monk, it's hard to tell if he decided, if he vowed to be born as a mushroom, or if it's just like that was the way the causes and conditions worked. For most people, um, in the story of rebirth, it's, um, it's not really a choice. It's just the causes and conditions determine the next realm of life based on past karma. So um, it could be like that. It's maybe a little bit implied like that in the story, I think. That this, this monk, in order to kind of repay his kind of karmic debt to um, his supporters, uh, manifested in this way that they would really appreciate this mushroom. So um, Kanadeva told this story to his father and son in Kapilavastir about the fungus mushroom growing on their tree. The ear in Japanese, you know, it's, it has the character for, um, for ear. And I don't know if they call those kind of mushrooms ear mushrooms, but it's, it's maybe part of, part of the 
inconceivable mystery here. This this mush this mushroom monk appeared as a big ear, hearing the cries. So then um, the father, after hearing this story, was maybe kind of in awe. And, um, and Rahul, I mean, uh, Kamadeva said, um, how old are you, by the way? And the householder said, I'm 79. And uh, Kamadeva then spoke this verse. Because that monk entered the way but failed to reach the principle, the truth, he changed his body into this mushroom to repay his gratitude for the faithful. When you are 81 years old, householder, that tree will no longer bear this ear-like fungus. So enjoy it for the next two years, because then it's going to stop growing. Why? He doesn't say, but I would understand it, but the karmic the karmic debt has been fulfilled. The conditions are such. Things arise and cease very mysteriously, but according to the Buddha, nothing is random. Everything arises due to particular conditions and everything ceases due to particular conditions at a particular time and a particular place, according to conditions. The law, the inviolable law of cause and effect, including karma. Cause and effect is just the entire universe of causes and conditions uh, give rise to effects. And karma is, a, I would say, a subset of cause and effect. It's particularly the intentions of sentient beings have causes and effects. So the law of karma also is this inviolable law of cause and effect, but there's more cause and effect than karma. Like, like a, uh, when a meteor hits the earth, that's a cause and effect situation, but there's no uh, karma of sentient beings or at least in an, an apparent way. So when the um, householder heard this verse from Rahulata, his respect and admiration grew for, this, uh, for Kanadeva. And he said, um, your disciple, me, is I'm old and weak, and I cannot take you for my teacher, but I promise that my second son Rahulata will become a monk and follow you. I'm too old for this, but I'm going to give you my son. As in the old ancient stories, sometimes happens. Yeah. Kanadeva said long ago that Tathagata predicted that your son Rahulata would become a great teaching master during the second 500 years of the Dharma. Our present meeting is a result of causes in previous lives. And uh, the son, Rahulata, was, I imagine, standing there at the time and heard this, and that was his awakening, as in the original case. Um, 
Raghavata heard about the karmic causes in former lives and experienced awakening. Satori. So this was his, this is kind of an unusual awakening story. <laughs> he hears this long, strange story. And just as a kid, and just hearing the story, he has some awakening. And then um, Kanadeva shaved Rahulata's head, making him a priest, and he became the 16th ancestor. So this prediction was that um, was that uh, Kanadeva says long ago the Tathagata Shakyamuni Buddha predicted that your son would become this teacher in the second 500 years of the Dharma. And so there's these, um, this is Dharma story, is that there's these ages of Dharma, there's the, these three periods, there's the first 500 years after Shakyamuni Buddha lived, it's called the period of true Dharma, authentic Dharma, when the, the Buddha's teachings are being practiced and verified, and uh, many, many people practicing them. And then, and then the second 500 years, and there's different sutras have different stories about the number of years. Maybe this is a common version. The second 500 years is called the counterfeit dharma, the age of counterfeit dharma, where it looks like the dharma. There's like robes and bowls and Buddha statues and all, but the, but the light, the practice and the verification of the light um, has been lost. It's like the semblance of true dharma. Scary, huh? Counterfeit dharma. Then there's another 500-year period called the age of decline, the degenerate dharma, when the whole thing is just fading out and there's hardly any robes and bowls even left. And, and uh, there's only six monasteries in Japan with more than 10 practitioners. And um, who's got the time for such old archaic stuff? And uh, so I think many, even in Dogen's time, interestingly, uh, the story was that was the age of decline already. Mapo, the um, degenerate dharma. Um, but and some people like um, like Shinran, the Pure Land founder, um, his his way of dealing with this age of decline was like nobody can really practice on their own anymore. No one's no one can make this kind of effort to be a Buddha anymore. It's it's kind of the it's the prediction from the past. We can't we can't do it. It's too degenerate. So therefore, we rely on the power of Amitama, Amitabha Buddha. We surrender our lives completely to Amit, the power of Amitabha Buddha. We don't have the self-power to do this practice, so we rely on the other power of Amitabha. That was his response to Mapo, the age of decline. But um, Dogen and Kazan Zenjins, they, um, their response was, uh, was uh, the age of true dharma and counterfeit dharma and 
declining dharma are only determined by and made by the practitioners. There's nothing more than people practicing. So if you practice the true way, it, um, it's not the age of decline, it's the age of true dharma. If you practice and verify the true dharma. So like in our, in our evening service dedication these days, say, may the true dharma be renewed in the age of decline. That's what, this is the story that that's referring to. It's, it's possible, but it's up to us. No one can do it for us. So um, Rahulata's awakening was just hearing about this causality, hearing about these causes and conditions from former times. And uh, you might say, well, that's, what's that have to do with awakening? But uh, you might recall the story of Shakyamuni Buddha's awakening that we're celebrating this week on the eighth day of the 12th month, according to Mahayana. Rohatsu in Japanese means December 8th, which happens to fall in the middle of this session that we're arranging nicely around days of the week. What day is today? The fifth? Sixth? Sixth. Yeah, so this is where leading up to the day of Rohatsu. Traditionally, um, usually the, the session is from December 1st, 1st to 7th for seven days. And then the morning, then sitting all, sit all night to uh, celebrate the Buddha's um, awakening. Yeah. And then the morning of the 8th, do the ceremony. In Japan, it's pretty standard. Kizan actually says to in his, uh, his collection of monastic records, he says, I myself have maintained this tradition of sitting through the whole night on the last night of Rohatsu um, since I was a teenager in his like 70s or something. So um, Buddha's awakening was that um, under the Bodhi tree that night, Buddha had these three visions Vidya, according to his own account in the, in the old tradition, the old suttas. Uh, first, he had this, this uh, vision of um, all his past lives going way, way back, like, you know, way, way back. All kind of like at once, you know, like thousands, I think he maybe says. And the particulars of them. I think he says it like, and this is where I lived, and this is what I ate, and this was my family. And before that, it was like this, and like this, and like this, and like this. Um, this is part of his awakening night. My teacher, Tenshin Roshi, likes to say um, the, these first two visions were like, um, he calls them like shamanic visions. They're not like necessary to awakening, 
but they were part of Shakyamuni Buddha's awakening. So um, how, how did he, what was this vision like? And how did, how did thousands and thousands of details of different lifetimes all happen in this one night? It was a shamanic vision. And the next vision was, um, was uh, kind of expanding that, that, um, that vision to all other beings not just his own past lives, but now he saw like all the, all this vision of how all beings are being born and dying according to karmic conditions. Um, this wasn't just my like Buddha um, lineage of lifetimes. Everybody has this, is, is, uh, is everything's determined by the previous one. In fact, every moment, of our life, there's an intention, a shape of the mind. This um, shape of the mind's intention right now is having an effect. There's no way out of this. This is the Buddhist vision. And it's determining the next moments, which are determining the next moments. But it's this web, this inconceivable, non-linear web, so that, like, well, um, why do I have a headache today? It might be like something that I ate yesterday, but it might be something from a former lifetime. It's kind of the story. It's, we can't figure it out. But, that there, but, the, but the teaching is that there is a condition. It's not, our headaches are not random. In fact, nothing is random, but the meteor landing on the planet is not a karmic event, but it's also not random. There are conditions for everything. Everything that's happening to us, pleasant and unpleasant and neutral, is uh, arising due to conditions, many of which we would call like karmic conditions, but not all of them, even the Buddhists. Sometimes, um, Phlegm and wind disorders are just caused by imbalances of phlegm and wind. <laughs> there wasn't necessarily karma. <laughs> Yesterday at lunch, I, I couldn't stop coughing. Uh, uh, like as if there was a little piece of food stuck in my throat, it felt like a sharp something. But, um, but that was actually karmic. That was a needle stuck in my throat. <laughs> <laughs> so if we can surrender to the inevitability of what's happening every moment, that literally the teaching as I understand it is that this moment cannot be any other way than it is. The next moment's gonna be a different way. And when it arises, it cannot be different than it is. According to conditions, this is the law of dependent arising, which includes the law of karma. Literally, it cannot be any different. In that way, what, what is happening right now could be said to be 
perfect, maybe very painful, but perfect in the sense of um, not like good perfect, but perfect in the sense of just thus, it must be thus. And if we think, but it, it could have been otherwise, what if that's just called delusion? <laughs> it couldn't be otherwise. Does it make sense? If it's kind of like a kind of clear teaching, I think. But um, if we really take it to heart, this is very liberating. It couldn't be otherwise. This does not become um, a, an apathetic way of being because, because our very care and wish to create new conditions for the next moment is part of the conditioning too. It's not like I mean, if we say like, well, um, it's all just conditioned, so I can't do anything. That's a little bit off track too, because I am, and all my intentions and wishes are part of the conditioning too. All my intentions are conditioned. So, uh, but if we surrender to this Dharma, it's quite liberating because uh, it reminds me of this, teaching that I mentioned this here a while back of uh, a teaching really struck me from Suzuki Roshi, right? Um, a student asked Suzuki Roshi, um, how do you know when you're enlightened? And Suzuki Roshi said, when you no longer complain. One way to see that teaching is like, is like this, is, is, is because there's an insight into the inviolable law of dependent arising. Things cannot be other than they are. So wishing they were otherwise, which is kind of like complaining, is um is kind of almost like denying this reality. Of course, we are allowed to complain. And if, if the complaint arises due to conditions, which is how complaints do arise then if we see that the complaint arises from conditions, we're free in the moment of complaining. Maybe this is what Rahulata um, realized when he had this satori on hearing about this kind of like, in the last line in, in um, Kind of David's story is our present meeting right now is a result of causes in previous lives. And I think it's fair to say the same is true right now. Our meeting right now, even if I can't see you, <laughs> my meeting with your name <laughs> is a result. <laughs> <laughs> a name is turned into a face on the screen. This is the result of past causes and conditions. In this lifetime, we know about many of them. In past lifetimes, we don't know so many of them, but um, I think we, in this, according to the Buddhist story, that things didn't begin at our birth around here. In the age of decline, 
what are you people doing in a zendo? <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. This thing is supposed to go extinct. What are you doing around here? Maybe it's causes from previous lives. We don't need to figure it out. We just need to appreciate it and surrender to it. And um, if if Sashin is um, is uncomfortable, I think probably for most people it's just fine. But I'm kind of like, a, just in case it's uncomfortable for anybody. <laughs> um, it's it's appropriate, right? There's causes and conditions for discomfort, and there's causes and conditions for comfort. And um, if we can see that this this pain in our legs is perfect, just perfect. Not like good, not like bring on some more. Just bring on exactly the amount that the causes and conditions um, are determined. In other words, um, thy will be done. In Buddhism, we say thy is praticya samupada, venerable, dependent, co-arising. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and in hell <laughs> and in hungry ghosts and in the realm of humongous fungus. <laughs> Thy will be done. Hallelujah. Now, Kazan's Taisho. This story is just is not a usual kind of Zen koan flavor, I think. But um, as, as for considering it now, I, I feel like, wow, this one, this one is great Sashin instructions. They all are, but this one's really good. Just surrender to causes and conditions um, from the past arising now just so, and it will always be like this. Does a greatly enlightened person fall into cause and effect? We might wish, no, we'll be done with all this. If we could realize the way, but um, when somebody in the past had that thought, they fell into a wild fox body for many, many lifetimes. Because even greatly enlightened people like Shakyamuni Buddha um, had a bad back and he, near the end of his life, in his late 70s, he had to lie down sometimes and asked um, his students to teach for him because he had to rest his back. He's a completely fully awakened Buddha, but um, the appearance of the body in the Amalakaya form is subject to causes and conditions. There's no escape, but the Buddha's trick was that he no longer tried to escape. So those of you especially sitting all week this week, don't even think about it. <laughs> <laughs> Kazan then he says, 
many people in the past and present who studied the way have referred to this story in admonishing against vainly entering the pure stream of monkhood without shame or conscience and vainly accepting the alms of the faithful without understanding or discrimination. Once you left home as a monk and entered the way, your dwelling place is not your own, nor is the food you eat yours anymore. You do not at all produce your own clothing, nor can a drop of water or blade of grass be taken and used as your own. The reason this is so is that you monks were totally conceived by this land. You were born from, from the nourishment of this land. So um, now Kazan goes on and like on kind of a rant here too. These ancestors like to rant sometimes. Were they complaining? <laughs> they're just encouraging he's talking to a bunch of monastics and um and uh that's the way that it's traditionally seen is that um and and i think the ones especially upholding this 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 kind of style that kazan's talking about are the the theravadan uh, monastics in like thailand and burma um, content with little, um, with their eight requisites and um, living on alms. Um, the Buddha set, set up a, this lifestyle. Then in a, in a way, we're kind of, we're, we're tasting this week, right? We don't get to choose our food all week. It's wonderfully served to us uh, by uh, beneficent bodhisattvas. Um, we receive it, we just hold out the bowl and it comes to us. That's the, that's the, the Buddha's Sangha style. And uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's, you know, living on alms means like, um, you could say that I, I would understand the intention of that lifestyle it's just what we we're talking about. Um, it's surrendering to causes and conditions, or usually we're maybe trying to control the causes and conditions, manipulate causes and conditions. And this is one way to kind of radically, like, whatever the causes and conditions are here, that will be done. I surrender to the causes and conditions. And, um, but the Buddha kind of set it up as like, but, you know, let's make, the conditions such that you are practicing the way for the benefit of all beings. And, uh, and let's see if, if that kind of practice um, alone will sustain you. I think that was a Buddha's great experiment. Actually, it was happening before the Buddha's time, but he's like, it's a good one. Let's keep this one going. And still, like that. And uh, in the past, I've tried living the, the old Buddha's lifestyle with these, um, all the Buddha's hundreds of precepts. So like, it was maybe about four years when I was living at no abode hermitage. I wanted to try the experiment. 
So um, I didn't have much money at the time, but what I had, I gave it all away, like to the penny, just to see what would happen. And then uh, just started practicing in this hermitage. And uh, it was a great experiment. I never went hungry. I didn't really even tell, I think some people knew that I was doing it, but people knew that this hermitage was happening there and there were other people there. And I think from the start, we maybe we did tell some people that we're just gonna um, try to live this way where we won't buy any food. And uh, there wasn't money to anyway. So, but we will do the Buddhist practice of uh, we'll carry our, our bowls downtown and and the style of this practice is you don't ask for anything but you could say is that kind of asking to hold the bowl sort of but it's it's um it's supposed to do it in a kind of like um off on the side kind of way in japan we would still do this practice of carrying the bowl takuhatsu literally means carrying the bowl. <laughs> and it, uh, there we would go door to door and we would chant the um, Enmejuku Kanangyo. Don't ring the doorbell, just chant. And uh, if anyone hears it and wants to come out and make an offering, they can. And just carry on. So um, it's a beautiful practice, I think. And um, <laughs> what I learned in my four years like this is um, the way, one way it supported my practice was it made my life very simple. <laughs> There's a lot of things you just can't do without money, but, but food, um, food always can, partly dependent on these great bodhisattvas that live at Green Gulch Farm down the road. And uh, after their after their second round of leftovers, they were, um, I think, required by law to compost those leftovers, of which there were plenty. And um, we became very grateful compost buckets. <laughs> and we're happy to eat that, those leftovers. And um, here at uh, Inconceivable Joy Temple, Mako Osho mentioned recently in a Dharma talk the um, her her thought about maybe maybe the Zen Center could switch to an all Dana model, which is like instead of having fees for for events, it would just be everything would just be by donation only. And, uh, it's scary. I appreciate her courage to even bring it up. I think it's a beautiful practice, and <coughs> most Theravada Dharma centers in America are do do keep this practice, and some some Zen temples, Shasta Abbey is a whole residential monastery, completely not not even suggested donations, completely just by donation, and, uh, and they're doing fine, even in the age of decline. So um, part of the reason for this is like, I think really it's always like this. If you, if you have a, um, a fee, 
and this actually applies to, um, so he's talking to these monastics here, but to householders, to um, lay people, or, you know, these days, ordained people mostly living this way too. If we're working for money, and so we're receiving something, and we're um, and we're giving something, we have maybe fixed amounts called a cost. Um, but in a way, you could see it as exactly the same. Basically, somebody's just offering the amount, the suggested amount, but um, but it's more like something's being given, and then something's being offered for that which is given. Even at the supermarket, you could say it's like this, right? It's just an it's just a gift exchange. We usually don't see it this way, right? We usually see it like, I'm entitled to this because I give you this for that. But we could, as a practice, see the exact same practice of buying things and, as an exchange of generosity. Wow, I'm so glad that farmers grew this food and that the supermarket's gathering it all together and keeping it fresh for me. And, um, and um, I would like some of that food. And I'd like to make an offering too, because it's so awesome what they're doing. Here, well, here's the actual amount. So really you could say, yes, there's an, there's an amount, maybe the amount is just like a suggestion for what's, what seems reasonable. <laughs> At least we hope so. And, um, so this is a way that everybody could potentially um, live on alms in the marketplace. You see, it's just an attitude, right? It's just um, things are coming to me and I naturally want to give something back. And that's maybe the Buddha's lifestyle was trying to make that even more explicit, but I think it's always this way for everyone. So um, in this way, you could hear the story. Well, when he says, um, your dwelling place is not really your own. He's talking to the monks, but isn't this true for all of us? Wait a minute, I bought my house. <laughs> well, but somebody built it. And you, you made a nice gift because they did a lot of work to build it and maintain it. But it's not really your own. You just, you made an offering and they made you an offering. Nobody really actually owns anything right, from, from the deepest perspective. This is a great contemplation. If we feel this way, we can still take care of our things and, and play, play the, by the rules of the game and so on. But, but uh, nobody really owns anything. If, if so, there would have to be a separate self that owns things. But there's just, there's just a bunch of skandhas and a bunch of like wooden nails and all these causes and conditions, right? So um, your dwelling place is not really your own and the food you eat is not really yours. If we say it's yours, the, who is the you, right? You do not at all make your own clothing, nor can a drop of water or blade of grass be taken and used as your own. Wow, drop of water? Well, somebody did a lot of work to put the pipes in the ground, right? And keep this, make it possible for us to just turn a faucet and 
water to come out. We receive it as a gift. This is the spirit of our meal chance too, right? The first of the five reflections. We reflect on the effort that brought us this food and consider how it comes to us. Infinite causes and conditions. Just to appreciate, deeply appreciate this, I think is what Kazan is asking us to do. How will you ever uh, requite the kindness of your parents who gave you this life and fed you? These are actually lines from the priest ordination ceremony. Um, and we have adapted version at San Francisco Zen lineage, but some lines are you can hear and hear. But these are the, the modern day too. Um, ordination ceremony has lines like this about the parents. And sometimes if the parents come to the ordination ceremony, um, the ordinees bow to the parents, um, kind of like thanking them for their life up to this point and kind of like taking leave of them too, just leave home. My, my parents came to my ceremony and that, that was very powerful to prostrate to them. How will you requite the kindness of the nations, land and water, entering the way and not having the eye of the way is like being a thief of the country. It is said in the ordination ceremony, the bonds of attachment are hard to break in the three realms of samsara, realization of the unconditioned is truly requiting blessings. The whole assembly chants this verse as the teacher shaves the disciple's head in the ordination ceremony. To this day, moreover, now that you have left home, you no longer pay homage to your parents or the, or the president, the emperor. This is just a kind of traditional thing. You, you kind of like in, in the old days, you're really like leaving, you're dropping out of society in this particular form. I'm skipping around over there because Kazan goes on and on. However, the ancients said, if you have not yet clarified your Dharma eye, it's hard to bite into a single grain of rice. But once your Dharma eye is clear, even if the sky becomes a bowl and Mount Sumeru is rice, and you consume it day and night, you'll not be faulted for receiving the alms of the faithful. So um, this is scary because uh, it's kind of saying you shouldn't eat the donations unless you like realize the way. But um, but actually, I, I remember this old sutta from the, from the foundational school, the middle length discourses number 151, the Pindapata Shuddha Sutta called the purification of alms food. So this is the problem, right? Like the, the alms food is impure if you're not, you know, your eye of the way is not open, Kazan says, but Buddha is a little more 
kind to us in the sutra. He's talking to the monks here. But um, a, a monk should consider thus, am I free from greed, hate, and delusion? And so on. It's a, long, it's a long sutra. Um, and um, if, if so, then I should carry on in this way. And if not, this monk should make effort to be free from greed, hate, and delusion. Have I realized true knowing and liberation? If so, then the monk should carry on this way. But if not, they can make effort to do so. This is how all monks purify their alms food. So um, I think it, I understand it to be saying that you don't have to be completely awakened to um, receive alms of the faithful um, or receive orioki lunch, but, um, but we're just making, making some effort in that direction. And then that's, that's noble practice. It's very kind of the Buddha. And this, this is pure, I think it's wonderful. It's really what Kazan is talking about here too. This is how you purify the alms food. So isn't this like purifying your mind? This is how you purify the food to make it edible. Is you just practice. And I felt this when I was really doing this for these four years in this more literal way. Um, I was receiving this food and I felt like people were just trusting me to practice. So um, I felt the burden of that responsibility. I feel like I can't goof off if people are just giving me food. Um, I have to practice. And that's one thing I learned by it. I think it's part of the Buddhist setup is that um, it's, encouraging, it's encouraging the people to be generous, make offerings, and it's encouraging the practitioners to practice. Too. It's, a, it's a beautiful system. I feel kind of not so good if, you, if you're receiving a lot and then not really practice. Practicing and offering something back to. I feel I'm kind of living up line alms for the past year and a half now. I mean, I'm using money, but I don't have any, um, any salary in this. Uh, since I left Santa Cruz and Center. And um, so again, it's kind of an experiment and um, it's working okay so far. And I'm trying to offer something. And, uh, and I notice how it, in this experiment so far in this last year and a half, at times when I go into like longer retreats, which I feel like is, I want to treat as a kind of offering to others too, but um, if I kind of go offline for a few months, um, the, the offerings kind of go down. So I come out and like, you know, offer some Dharma stuff, it, it like um, kind of comes. So interesting, without saying anything about it, right? it's just, I think this is the law, the inviolable law, cause and effect, the Buddha's trying to teaches about uh, the setup. Just recall your, Kazan says, recall your own very first arousing of bodhicitta and examine yourself as to whether or not this is still so. As it's been said, it's harder later to be as careful as in the beginning. 
unquote. Kazan knows how to how to nail it. You know, when we first start practicing, yeah, let's do it, let's do it all. After a few years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, <laughs> can you keep it going? Really, if you proceed in the spirit of that beginner's mind, so soon, will you not become a person of the way? Oh, elders, you must not waste time. Time waits for no one. Don't wait for death to find you. The light in the eyes fails in a second. If you don't turn over a single spadeful of earth in the field of black, which is this um, phrase apparently for black robe monastics, then you will succumb to misfortune of a hundred penalties in the ring of the iron-walled hell. <laughs> Fire and brimstone. Don't say I didn't warn you. <laughs> oh, you good practitioners. You've been so fortunate to encounter the Tathagata's true Dharma wheel. This is rarer than encountering a mountain lion in the city of Austin. <laughs> city it says rarer than the blooming of the udambara tree which only blooms once in thousands of years be cautious practice carefully and clarify your dharma don't you see don't say that this story about the ancient mushroom monk is about sentient beings or insentient beings nor should you think about such things as secondary karmic results and primary karmic results or the karmic results of environment or body. This monk in a former life became a tree fungus in a present life. When he became that mushroom, he did not know I used to be a monk. And when he was a monk, he did not know I was manifested among the myriad things. Thus, Though you are now sentient and you have some awareness, there's something it's like to be you. And you can discriminate between pain and tickle. You are no different really from a tree mushroom. Why? Isn't ignorance not knowing that that mushroom is you and not knowing that you became mushroom. Thus you see sentience and non-sentience as different and the two kinds of karmic result mentioned above separate things. In other words, he's saying that though we are we're aware of sentient beings. We're not fully aware of everything because we, it's hard for us to know that we are um, inseparable from the uh, humongous fungus. If you clarify the self, capital S, 
to self, then what can you call sentient or insentient? The true self, um, as Sri Maladevi says, the transcendent self, um, Dharmakaya, Buddha nature, is, uh, is unchanging and uh, indestructible, radiant and clear, like that bowl of transparent water, always awake, clear. So clarifying this true all-encompassing, timeless and boundless self, then what can you call sentient and insentient? What can you call, what's the difference ultimately between a human and a mushroom? The true self is not in past, present, or future, nor is it six sense faculties, the six sense objects, or the six sense consciousnesses. I mean, there's, we have all these colors and we have eyeballs and colors and ears and sounds and then the consciousnesses that make it possible to know all this. What more could there be than these 18 elements of experience, all experience is accounted for by these six consciousnesses and their faculties and objects. But here, this true self is not one of these 18 arising and ceasing realms of consciousness. It neither cuts off nor is cut off. It is neither self-effort or other effort. It's not really a matter of the Zen school making the pure Dharma in the age of decline with our self-power. And it's not just relying on Amitabha Buddha's other power. The true self goes beyond both of these. You must practice exceedingly carefully and see by dropping off body and mind. Don't be vainly proud of assuming the appearance of a monk and don't deludedly stop at leaving home. Even if you've escaped the calamity of flood waters, you may still be afflicted with the calamity of fire. These causes and conditions that destroy the earth. Even though you've abandoned mundane worries and abide with the Buddha, karma is hard to escape. How much more so are people not in the Sishin who pursue illusory things and are deluded by others, like gossamer hairs and drifting dust, rushing off east and west, rising and falling in the court and the countryside, feet never stepping on the real ground, minds never reaching the real place. He's not a rat. Joe is um, totally caught up in all of this empty stuff. Not only miss out on this one life, but being the pass through many lives. Don't you realize from the ancient past to the present, it's never been mistaken 
and no one has been ever separated from this true self. You still don't know that it's here now and are therefore like hairs or dust. If you don't exhaust this not seeing today, when will I think, I hope that in Sashim, it's okay to like talk like this. It's strong words, right? It makes, makes me cringe. <laughs> makes my hair stand on end. It makes hundreds of needles stick in my throat. <clears throat> Outside of Sashin, it's maybe too much. This is part of the wind of our house. It's getting late. I have some humble words concerning this story. Would you like to hear them? Kay's answers. What a pity if the eye of the way is not yet clear, confused about the true self, having to repay others, the retribution has yet to end. Do you have any questions? It's a very sobering <laughs> reminder. Yes, thank you. Um, so if, uh, you told maybe a student of philosophy about causes and conditions and, and that sort of thing. Um, he or she might say, like, oh, yeah, that's determinism, right? And, you know, there's no free will, and there's just sort of this universe doing its math. And, um, you know, whatever mind we have is kind of like a result of that and yeah. not a mm -hmm. effect or not a cause of that. So and not randomly, not randomly arising. The mind must be um, conditioned by past causes. That's the Buddhist story. The true self here, we say uh, Buddha, Buddha mind, Buddha nature is said to be unconditioned. So we do have this one reality in this in the buddha nature story of um, a realm that's actually not karmically conditioned and there, that's why it doesn't ever change buddha nature but um our individual mind stream our eight our our six consciousnesses our five aggregates all of that is conditioned including intention and that's the that's a big one Intention, chaitana, is one of the um, one of the many mental factors in the Abhidharma system, conditioned dharmas. So, um, particularly look at this conditioned factor called intention. We see that our intention is completely, utterly conditioned, moment to moment intention. Me. Tokyo moving the hand in a circle like this is not my personal choice. It feels like it is, but the, but the Dharma is saying that 
there's an intention to move the hand here. And that intention is um, arising each moment due to infinite inconceivable causes and conditions, which um, as I would understand it, sounds like there's not a free will. If, if by free will, we mean an, an unconditioned intention, then I, I, I would understand the Buddhist story to be, there's not that kind of free will. And if we say that there, that there's a, that there is a free will, <laughs> then my question would be, whose free will is it? And um, if we say mine, then whose is me? Well, there's just five aggregates. Is all I can find when I look for me. And those are all conditioned. Oh, well, what about Buddha's free will? Oh, thy will be done. Maybe okay, but uh, could it be sometimes that, that this hand make, makes a circle um, due to Buddha's free will? <laughs> that, that could be another story. But, um, but I, Kokyo, I'm quite convinced that I don't have any free will, even though I feel like I do. And, um, and that teaching could be, um, could be uh, scary. It could be, it could be, uh, it could be depressing, but the very same teaching could be very liberating to see how that could be, the teaching of no free will. <laughs> what do you think? So de determinism. Everything that arises is arises dependent on conditions. Is the Buddhist law of dependent arising, including intentions. But um, it's not predetermined. In other words, it's not like um, like we can see how the cause and effect is gonna is gonna play out ten years from now. Although there are stories like today's where the Buddha made this prediction that Rahulata would, would become a disciple of Kanadeva hundreds of years in the future. Maybe Buddhas can do that, but um, it seems that we can't usually do that because um, it's way too complex. There's too many causes and conditions. It's everything's involved. Any, any counter? Arguments, rebuttals. I mean, this is just how it seems, strange though it sounds, from the Buddhist teaching. Quantum mechanics. Is that in the realm of conditions? Would you say? Well, there's like inherent randomness, so it can't happen. Cause. Or at least not one we know about. Yeah, there is some funny stuff going on there in the quantum realm, right? Where this where this thing goes through the slot and um, and becomes a particle or a wave, depending on whether it's observed or not. But there in that example, we could say 
well, then it is, it's, it's, we could say what that thing is, is, is dependent on the observer. So it's conditioned by the observer. Um, so it's kind of still falling, it's strange working, it's still falling into the realm of um, cause and effect, it seems to me. Yes, Stephen. You just um, bowing because I uh, guess I was just bowing <laughs> because um because you're conditioned to bow and another bows. So in Zen, we have we're in this amazingly wonderful conditioning program. <laughs> we're conditioned to like sit still and upright and let go and, uh, and so did, but did we choose to come here to this session? It feels like it, right? Totally feels like it. But um, you can even trace back some of the causes and conditions, right? The, the, uh, the announcement popped up on the Zen Center website. Somebody announced it at the Sodi Circle, and then and then your mind started thinking. Hmm. Last time I did a sashimi, um, I came out of it feeling like appreciative. It was kind of painful, but it's been long enough that I don't remember <laughs> I just remember the afterglow. I'll sign up. <laughs> now we're back. Oh yeah. Now I remember. <laughs> it's a package deal. Okay. Thank you for your uh, for your surrender to conditions at this moment.